This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, we are joined by Senator Joni Ernst. Joni Ernst was elected from Iowa in 2014 and is the first female combat veteran to serve in the U.S. Senate after a distinguished career in the Army Reserve and in the Army National Guard. She is the vice chair of the Senate Republican Conference and a member of the House Armed Services Committee. Senator Ernst, welcome to the show. Thanks, Roger. It's great to be with you. Well, uh, we've obviously worked together over the years uh, through the Reagan National Defense Forum and other national security and defense programs we do at the Reagan Foundation Institute. It's, it's wonderful to have you here today to kind of take a step back and have a broader conversation on your role in, in America's political life and uh, kind of a broader set of issues. Uh, in you were elected in 2014 and, and the first female combat veteran to serve in the U.S. Senate after a career in the Army Reserve and Army National Guard. Uh, of course, now you're the vice chair of the Senate Republican Conference and uh, a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee. What got you into politics? Well, it, it's a lengthy story. I'll abbreviate it. Of course, I've always been interested. I come out of a conservative family in southwest rural Iowa, uh, but they weren't overly involved in politics. Just, you know, very conservative folks, they go vote. Um, but it really was um, my movement into the military. And, uh, you know, I, I did that because I really wanted to give back to my country. Uh, so I joined Army ROTC, and that actually stemmed out of uh, a trip to Ukraine that we can talk about here in a little bit. But I just really wanted to give back. And through that, I was able to hone my leadership skills in the military, and it led into elected political office. And I'm just so thankful that my life took that wonderful turn. Well, yeah, and you had service in the Iowa State Senate, of course, in the U.S. Senate. Just give us a, a quick perhaps perspective on, you know, first female combat veteran. I mean, that's a combination that, you know, uh, really kind of broke barriers in the U.S. Senate, Senate known as, you know, the, the, this kind of exclusive club. Um, that combat veteran experience is something you use every day, something a, a really kind of a, a big part of your life in the Senate? It, it is because I can speak with authority on those issues that are affecting our service members, our men and women in our the great uniform of the United States. And I understand their day-to-day -day struggles, those challenges. And then from this perspective in the United States Senate, know how to apply various solutions to make sure they get down to you know, all the guys and gals on the ground, those mechanics and supply clerks and infantry soldiers and Marines, you name it. Um, often in the Senate, the leaders will think very strategically at a much higher level. But I have that experience on the ground working day to day with the, the Joes that are getting it done. Um, and it, that is a different perspective and one that I think is needed and which is why I'm so excited to be the first female combat veteran elected into the United States Senate. Um, but I always do believe it's great to have veterans that are stepping up and serving in a little different capacity 
out of that uniform. And that's what I've been able to do here in the United States. It's, it, it's a great point. You know, conservatives especially have the mindset of, hey, you know, let's keep Washington out of as much as we can. But if you look at the Constitution, when it comes to our military, that's squarely within the purview of the U.S. Congress uh, and particularly uh, those uh, who are have the responsibility within the Congress. People like you serve on the Arm, Armed Services Committee. And it extends not just in the strategy, but things like the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which you've obviously been a leader in addressing, particularly as it relates to, to sexual assault in the military. Um, but like, you have to get into those details. That is the core constitutional responsibility of elected members of Congress. Absolutely, it is, Roger. And I try and emphasize that point whenever I am doing town halls across the great state of Iowa. Um, visiting with my constituents is there are a number of things that are spelled out through the Constitution. Why the federal government was formed and first and foremost is the protection of our citizens. And that means this is one of the jurisdictions of the federal government, our national defense. And so I have been heavily engaged in that area. I think it's extremely important that the federal government understand what our role is when it comes to different policies, what it is and what it isn't. Um, so there are many things that the federal government loves to dabble in that really aren't within uh, our area as spelled out by the Constitution. You know, nice to have things that we like to do, but not things that we are charged with by the Constitution. Yeah. Core, yeah, core responsibility, Ab absolutely. Um, yeah. Let, you know, you mentioned that you talked to Iowans and, and, and in the Senate, you know, it's, it's this limited number of people that now serve in the military ever since we had the all-volunteer force in the end of the, the draft. Where do you think the biggest gap is, Senator? Is it when you go ahead and talk to constituents across the state of Iowa that seem not to really have a good feel for the military? Or is it a bigger gap as you engage your 99 other colleagues in the U.S. Senate that perhaps don't have that appreciation? Give me your impression of that. My impression is it... it Iowans are, are very focused on the members of the military. And it's an unusual situation because in Iowa, we do not have any active duty posts or bases. Um, most of our service members, they'll join active duty in whatever service branch and they'll leave Iowa, they'll go somewhere else. But we do have a large number of National Guardsmen in the Air Guard and the Army Guard or serving in the Reserve services. Um, so Iowa is a little unique, but with those reservists and those National Guardsmen, they're in every community. Mm. Um, we have engaged uh, quite actively through the global war on terror all around the globe. So Iowans are really tied into those service members. You know, you really can't throw a stone in Iowa without hitting somebody that knows of someone that served overseas or has a family member that has served in World War II or Korea or the global war on terror. So Iowans are very, very engaged and they understand those issues. It is actually in the United States Senate where <laughs> I see the greatest gap um, mm. of knowledge when it comes to our service members and those everyday challenges that they face. Uh, uh, that's amazing. It's pretty unusual, your description of Iowa, because increasingly, and, and you, you speak about this, and others who serve uh, know this as well, is that 
across the country, increasingly there's this uh, gap. There is this kind of waning connection between those who serve and those who don't. Uh, I want to uh, jump to an area where you've just really taken the lead, and that is uh, the war in Ukraine and, and Russia's just naked aggression and assault on uh, the free people of Ukraine. Uh, but before we go there and, and, and your personal connection, again, which uh, we were talking before we started, I, I, I'm kind of embarrassed I wasn't aware of until prepping for this. Uh, I have a, a kind of a question that's got to be on the mind of all people who follow Iowa politics. Who wins in a push-up contest between the junior senator of Iowa and the senior senator of Iowa? Because there's this senator running for re-election who seems to, uh, amazingly at his age, be pretty good at, at, at push-ups. Yeah, okay. So whenever it's a contest between my senior senator and <laughs> me, I will always defer to the senior <laughs> senator. <laughs> so he does do push-ups daily. And it is part of my exercise routine as well. But in this case, um, senior senator will always win. <laughs> uh, re reflecting the wisdom of the junior senator from Iowa and her deference to senior senator. But yeah, I mean, while he's known perhaps for his push-ups, uh, your workout regimen is legendary uh, uh, in, in Washington, D.C. and Capitol Hill. Tourists can, can probably see you running the streets early morning here in, in, in D.C. Uh, another great example, Senator. Um, from, from the somewhat comedic to the serious, talking about uh, Ukraine, uh, mentioned earlier, you've just been a leader in the Congress uh, with a voice of clarity. I had an opportunity to testify before your committee, and you were, you were quite clear on this days after uh, the conflict, the war began, that the measure of success here is the rollback uh, of Russian tanks. What I didn't know, and I'd love for you to share, is that your connection to Ukraine goes back decades. Uh, to 1989, uh, as I understand it, where you were participated in the agricultural exchange program while you're in college. Tell us more about that. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you, Roger. So this uh, war in Ukraine touches uh, my heartstrings, obviously, because I do have connection to Ukraine and was in Ukraine in 1989 while it was part of the former Soviet Union. It was an agricultural exchange. Uh, the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college, I went to Iowa State University. Um, it was not a university-sponsored trip, but it was um, an ag exchange that was between Ukraine and the state of Iowa. There were 18 Iowa students that went, we all grew up on farms or had connection to agriculture. And we went to Ukraine and stayed on a collective farm in rural Ukraine. We each were housed with different families, Ukrainian families that worked on that collective farm. And what struck me then was that um, the Ukrainian people had very little. And I grew up humble beginnings, very small family farm. But what I recognized, you know, of course, two different superpowers, the Soviet Union and the United States, I thought we would have the same opportunities you know, as citizens from these countries because we were so strong and powerful. Mm. But what I recognized was that on that collective farm, they had no running water. They were still farming with horses and wagons. Um, wow. My family did not have a refrigerator or a telephone or a car. Um, and those were all things that, of course, my family in 1989 in Iowa had. And so the differences between 
the citizens of these two superpowers was striking to me. And did you know first, what you're getting into? Did you did you I, know that? Hmm. You know, I, I have to admit, I was a little naive, and we had been briefed before we went to expect that you know, maybe there would be situations where we didn't have flushing toilets, um, but it, it was very striking. It was so austere once we were on the ground and we felt very separated from civilization. Mm. And, uh, you know, to the, the biggest takeaway from that exchange for me was on that first evening that the community came together in the community uh, town center there was a, a question answer period with the Iowa students and the Ukrainians. And it, it was an agricultural exchange, Roger. But the first question that the Ukrainians asked us was, what is it like to be an American? Wow. And that struck me. And it has stayed with me all of these years that in 1989, those Ukrainians so badly wanted to look to the West. They wanted to follow the United States example. They wanted to be free. And we were peppered with questions about our form of government and democracy, how our republic was formed. And that's how we spent our time in Ukraine, was visiting with these Ukrainians on how truly wonderful our nation was and the opportunities it presented to us. That's why I joined the military when I got back to Iowa State University. I knew I had to give back to this great country that I live in uh, for the opportunities that it has given me. And that eventually led me into elected office as well. But that, that's an amazing story. Incredible. I mean, an agricultural exchange really leads, it becomes a civics exchange. I mean, really, yeah. you become an ambassador explaining our system of government. And I mean, had you ever thought about that question before until you were asked on stage in Ukraine about, you know, having to explain America to someone? Roger, no. Um, again, I think I was rather naive and I've always been a proud American. Again, I've always loved our country, but until you experience living in a country that doesn't have freedom, where the government is always watching what you do, uh, I don't think you recognize how incredible our own nation is. And it was that question that was posed that really made me reflect upon um, the wonderful opportunities presented by our form of democracy, this incredible republic we call the United States of America. But at a young age, and I was blessed because I was 19 at that time, so I've had a lifetime to reflect on that and to be able to find ways to serve my country. And I wish that other Americans had that same opportunity because I, I think a lot more folks would truly appreciate who we are as a nation if they saw how badly other countries and other citizens in other countries wanted to see and experience freedom. Excellent point. And oftentimes you have to step outside to appreciate what's going on inside. And that, 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 that's really moving. You keep in touch with that host family or I read the host sister that perhaps you're still in touch with. Where, where are they now? 
Yes, and thank you, Roger. I was very concerned at the onset of the uh, the war in Ukraine because I had lost touch with my Ukrainian sister. She had married and, and moved away from the collective, but I was able to reconnect with her um, through a number of the other participants in the exchange. And I do visit with her. We try to message back and forth on a daily basis but it does get interrupted. So she lives off of the collective in near an area called Mykolaiv. It's one of the larger cities in Ukraine. It's a port city. She and her husband are school teachers and they have converted their schoolhouse into a refugee center. Wow. And so for a period of weeks, the Russians were not allowing Ukrainians to pass through their lines to get to safety. Um, but they have started receiving refugees at their schoolhouse. They prepare meals for those refugees and, and food. And they're also preparing food for the Ukrainian army. The Russian army is on the verge of that city. They're, they have a front line along that city. And she details to me the rocket attacks, the air raids that happen over the city. Uh, she said it's extremely scary. They are very concerned. She just moved her daughter to Poland um, for her daughter's safety, but she will return to Ukraine. Uh, her mother is still there with her as well. So it has been tense. And there are nights that I... I have trouble sleeping because I am so concerned about my Ukrainian family and what might be going on in their community. We've seen the atrocities that the Russians have committed against the Ukrainians. It is genocide. They're indiscriminately killing across Ukraine and what many of those families have suffered. It's abhorrent. Um, so, yes, the personal connection I have to Ukraine and all of the other Iowa connections that we have in Ukraine as well, it's touching. It connects us in a way that we haven't maybe felt connected to many other countries as they go through uh, difficulties. This one really hits hard. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. You know, the breadbasket of America and the breadbasket of, of, you know, Ukraine is for, for that part of the world. Um, when, when you speak to your your Ukrainian host sister, does she kind of give you share some thoughts or requests or pleas for help from the United States? What 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 is she asking for? Does she even go there with you, or is it kind of less? Well, and, and she knows what I do. She knows that I serve in the United States Senate, and I have been helping her um, monetarily. And she had expressed to me, and she has never asked for that. She has never, not once, asked for assistance. Um, she hasn't pressed me on the American government stepping up to do more. And we we do this because um, because I love her very much and I love her family. And they were so kind to me on our exchange and they treated me as if I was part of their family. And so one of the most recent messages that I'd gotten from Svetlana was that um, she she was almost embarrassed because they were at a stage where she was relying on the assistance that my friends and I have been sending to her. And they in turn use that to buy groceries for the school and the refugees. And I've, I've um, connected another Iowa company with her as well. 
that will be able to provide humanitarian support for the refugees that are staying at their school. And she stated how, how horrible it is to have to rely on others. And she really does hate um, that they have come to this point. Uh, the one thing that we all need to understand about the Ukrainian people is that they have an extreme will to fight and they are such a self-reliant country, it is very hard for them to ask for help. And so knowing that and understanding that, the very fact that Zelensky has pleaded to NATO countries, our allies, and to the United States to please send more humanitarian support, to please send more military aid, we know that he does that, this at a cost to his pride. But it is so imperative that we push back the Russians and get them out of this democratic nation. So yeah, we'll continue supporting how we can, and we uh, should. Yeah, and, and, and certainly you've been advocating that we're going to get to some of the uh, specific military and, and, and security support policies that you've been advocating. But just to hit on, uh, stay with the humanitarian piece, I mean— the British during World War II, you know, needed the support of the United States. It's, it's kind of understood that when your country is under assault in the way that Ukraine is from, from Russian aggression, that they're going to need support. You traveled to Poland in, in, in March with a delegation of, of senators. Uh, we've heard from others in this program and, and can read about it in the press that there's a concern that the humanitarian assistance is not getting from Poland, and it's not being, it's not organized well enough to really penetrate into Ukraine. Is, is that your sense? Is that the kind of what's going on with your Ukrainian host sister, or do you think it's improved perhaps since when you visited in March? What's your take on, on that? Well, I do think that the movement of goods um, from those countries going into Poland, other nations that are supporting with these humanitarian efforts, I do believe that that will continue to, to uh, be refined over time. The issue that I am seeing, though, is that the Russians are attacking rail lines. They're attacking major thoroughfares where those humanitarian corridors need to exist. And so to get those goods and supplies into Ukraine, to the furthest reaches of Ukraine, um, for the families that are really hurting, those that are in the shelled areas, those that are being um, subjected to air raids, uh, all of that is is uh, very, very difficult. And I believe it'll only get more difficult over time as the Russians continue to target infrastructure. So that's a huge concern of mine. Um, certainly when you get to the areas where the Russians are you know, butting up against Ukrainian forces, like down towards Mykolaiv, where my um, sister's family is, uh, it becomes very difficult to get those food supplies, the humanitarian aid, medicine, um, into those areas because it is extremely dangerous. So let's talk about the, the conflict and 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 Russian Ukrainian forces uh, facing each other. The first phase of the war was Putin's overreach and the resilience of uh, the Ukrainian people led by their president, Zelensky. Uh, they were not able to penetrate Kiev. But now the Donbass region seems to be the focus. And in the south, as you've just outlined, you've been an advocate and you've said this on the floor of the Senate in, in hearings, uh, in columns and op-eds that we need to do more. 
What's top of mind for you right now in terms of what the United States and our allies, NATO, we just had the meeting there with our Secretary of Defense and, and the NATO defense ministers. What do we need to do next? What's top of mind for you? Yeah, top of mind is obviously for me, it will be from the national security perspective and making sure that the Ukrainians are given what they're asking for, um, not what our DOD planners are saying, oh, well, this is what we're willing to give at this time. Um, the Ukrainians have a very clear plan that they have presented to members of Congress. They've presented this to the Department of Defense. They've presented it to Secretary Blinken at the State Department. Uh, they have presented their plan of defense uh, to us with the types of weapons that they need, not just the United States, but also our allies and partners too. But I do believe that we need to provide them those platforms and the armaments necessary to push um, the Russians out of the Donbass. Let's get them out of Ukraine, period. That's what winning looks like in Ukraine. So it's surface-to-air missiles. It is the MiGs that they have asked for, which Poland had said they would provide to the Ukrainians. Um, we certainly can go in and backfill our, our allies as they are providing the necessary platforms into Ukraine. So again, it should be based on what the Ukrainians are asking for not what some DOD planner in a cubicle at the Pentagon is saying, well, I think this is what we'll give them this week. Um, so it needs to be very strategic. But what they're asking for is obviously what they need to defeat the Russians. You know, I don't think holding the Russians where they are now is acceptable. We need to have that shock and awe factor where we can go in and lamb blast the Russians to get them to further withdraw out of the Donbass, get them back into Russia where they belong. Um, let's soundly defeat them. Let's not just nitpick around the edges, um, but let's provide them all of the necessary platforms to get them completely out of Ukraine. As usual, you get you hit right on the point, Senator. What does winning look like? You need to find it in, in a very clear way. It's, as I heard it, roll back the Russians out of Ukraine. Secretary of Defense Austin, just a day or so ago, talked about we, the Ukrainians can win this. Do you think the administration, specifically President Biden, shares your definition of what one, winning looks like in Ukraine? Well, we have heard them state, state that before, um, but not concisely. They've, again, tinkered around the edges with what winning looks like. Um, but we have been saying for months now, since the beginning of the war, when the Ukrainians showed that they weren't going to fall in three to five days, as this administration thought they would, um, they have shown the will to fight, the will to win. They have told us we will fight to the very last man and woman in Ukraine in order to get the Russians out. So I am glad that Secretary Austin finally has stated clearly that winning is getting the Russians out of Ukraine. Um, they can do this, we know that. But this administration has really had this attitude of appeasement. You know, if we appease Russia, then they'll maybe, you know, withdraw. That absolutely is not going to happen. Uh, Vladimir Putin is in Ukraine to take Ukraine. And once he takes Ukraine, which he's not, but in his mind, if he takes Ukraine, then he'll continue on to other 
countries like Moldova. Um, so we have the opportunity now to utilize the Ukrainians and their uh, spirit of fighting to get the Russians back into their place, which is in Russia. But our administration has not been clear about that. They have operated through a doctrine of appeasement, and it it is absolutely not the direction that we need to go. We need to show a lot more strength in order to get the Russians out of Ukraine. And, and when you talk about, you, you know, you're saying you know, the administration has acted kind of through the approach of appeasement, it seems to be this notion that they're very concerned about escalation, and and Putin has played into this certainly by talking, you know, with the nuclear sab uh, saber rattling. Before we were discussing the assistance that the Ukrainians need, we should give the Ukrainians the military assets that they think they need to win, as opposed to someone, as as you put it, in a cubicle in the Pentagon, uh, decides what they should or should not have. Is it possible also that the reticence for perhaps? giving the Ukrainians MiGs, those Russian aircraft, or more sophisticated artillery, or more sophisticated air defense system, and the other pieces that you talked about. Is that possible? Is also the White House kind of reticent to do that because they're worried about escalation? And how do you think through that piece of it, this kind of self-deterrence and concern about escalation? Yes, I, I think you're spot on. I think that the White House is reticent to uh, really provide those, um, you know, those keystones of victory to the U Ukrainian army. And uh, it was interesting because as I had met with a number of the Ukrainian parliamentar uh, parliamentarians um, in Germany and Poland uh, on that delegation trip, one of them actually stated that the United States is suffering from Afghan syndrome. Um, because we did provide the Afghans with a considerable amount of military equipment, but this and, and Afghan, you know, Afghanistan fell, the Afghans fled. This is an entirely different situation. So I think the White House is concerned that, wow, if Ukraine should fall, you know, we will have all of this military equipment in Ukraine. But it is a very, very different situation. The Ukrainians are fighting for their own sovereign country against an invader. Um, they have the will to win. So providing them the means to win is absolutely critical at this point. And the White House, when they uh, will talk about, oh, well, Putin is threatening to use uh, nuclear weapons or biological weapons, whatever it might happen to be, certainly he has been doing that from the very beginning. Um, but that doesn't mean that Ukraine should just surrender and say, oh, you've got a nuclear weapon, so we'll give you our country. That's not how it works. Um, so we will continue to, to fight, provide them the means necessary to win. Um, I would say that Vladimir Putin, should he ever decide to employ those types of weapons, nuclear, biological, radiological, he would be a pariah on the world stage. And all of those uh, actors, those nation states that are sitting on the fringes, they will then be forced to decry Vladimir Putin's actions. Um, there is no reason that Vladimir Putin should employ a nuclear weapon when he is the one that's on the offense in uh, Ukraine. Well, certainly our declaratory policy is, you know, which is the policy says we will use nuclear weapons if necessary 
is there to deter Vladimir Putin from ever deploying or, or, or using nuclear weapons. And, and as long as leader, you know, someone like Vladimir Putin believes that that declaratory policy is actually something that will be implemented, you know, for, for decades now, it's, 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 it's stopped those from, from using that as a tactic. You know, I, I, I would certainly hope and expect that the Biden administration would stand by uh, the declaratory policy of not only Republican presidents, but Democratic presidents for decades. Yes, absolutely. And uh, let's go back to 1994 as well. At that point, Ukraine was a nuclear power and had the third largest nuclear arsenal um, in the world. And with the Budapest Agreement that the United States signed onto with Ukraine, we stated that if the Ukraine would get rid of its nuclear weapons, the United States would defend Ukraine. So we are obligated. A lot of people will ask, why does Ukraine matter? And I can give them a lot of reasons why Ukraine matters, but we can bring it right on down to 1994 and the Budapest Agreement that stated that we would defend Ukraine. We are obligated to defend Ukraine. Um, so. My thinking is, wow, if the Ukraine still had those nuclear weapons, I don't think Vladimir Putin would be rolling across UK, Ukraine right now and committing these atrocities. So we do need to show strength against Vladimir Putin and let him know that just because he makes threats doesn't mean he can take over uh, sovereign territory. No, that's, a, that's a great point. And, and you know, for those who don't want to see nuclear weapons proliferate, we got to get this this right here. One last point on on Ukraine, uh, and then we'll migrate to so, some other uh, issues that you're, you're leading on in, in the Congress and are outspoken on. Uh, you wrote an op-ed in FoxNews.com recently. This goes to the nature of support we give Ukraine. Uh, there's been a line drawn that the Ukrainians can only use the military equipment that they're familiar with which is generally Russian-made military equipment. And, and you kind of uh, really just cut up that argument and said, hey, we can give them U.S. equipment, we can train them on it. And, and an example of something we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, which is you talk to, to boots on the ground, military people on the ground who do this, they think they can get the Ukrainians trained up you know, in days or weeks on U.S. military equipment. Give us a little bit more on that, because it's a type of um, you know, piece that just cuts through an argument that seems to be doctrine, you know, seems to be just accepted wisdom. And But because you're on the ground, you have the familiarity, you have the relationships, you're like, hey, it doesn't have to be this way. Tell, tell us more about that. Yes, it doesn't have to be that way, most certainly. And we have already seen Ukrainians utilize uh, NATO equipment or American-made equipment that's um, NATO compatible. Uh, typically, what we see the Ukrainians using is Soviet-era um, Russia-designed equipment uh, platforms, uh, of course, um, but they are also familiar with many American systems, NATO systems, and they, they can be very similar. And as one parliamentarian pointed out to me from Ukraine, she said, we are not stupid. <laughs> we can learn. <laughs> and I, I agree with her. And I understand if it takes a soldier in the American army, you know, 
three weeks or four weeks to learn a platform. That's what it's going to take a Ukrainian soldier to learn a platform. I had, I actually had a high level political appointee at the Department of Defense who was describing how we couldn't give American equipment to the Ukrainians because it would take them a year or two years to learn the weapons systems. And I was thinking, this guy has no clue. He obviously doesn't believe that the Ukrainians are as intelligent as the American fighting man or woman, and he is absolutely wrong. Um, so their soldiers are just as adept at learning as the American soldier. And so we can provide them with American produced equipment, platforms, armaments, and they will pick that up and they will run with it. Um, our soft forces, our special operations forces, have been training the Ukrainian military for over seven years now prior to the, um, the invasion of Russia into Ukraine. And because of that training, uh, the military in Ukraine is much more adept and uh, they're skilled. And we would love to see more of that training occurring. And we will see more of that mm. outside of Ukraine. But yes, we can provide them the platforms necessary to defeat Russia. They can learn it, most certainly. Yeah, it, it, it's just a great example of kind of the oversight and the, the questioning of quote unquote conventional wisdom that's necessary uh, for elected leaders to exercise over, you know, the administration officials of any administration. Um, uh, pretty interesting. You mentioned the the training that's gone on between U.S. Special Operation Forces and Ukrainian Forces really since uh, 2014 expanded a lot um, uh, during the Trump administration, but of course happened after uh, the uh, the annexation of Crimea. You know, I'm going to kind of move across the globe, the globe here. Uh, because you're also someone who focuses a lot on China. And that's not just from a national security standpoint, which, of course, you do uh, from your perch to the Senate Armed Services Committee, but also the Agriculture Committee. And almost every aspect of, of oversight from Congress, not just from a foreign policy standpoint, but from a domestic policy standpoint, uh, you have to think and focus on China. You do that focusing on the national debt. You do that focusing, as I just mentioned, on agriculture and, of course, on national security. First question on that as we kind of move across the globe. What do you say in response? And this comes from Democrats and some Republicans, conservatives alike, that if we focus too much on Russia, Senator Ernst, uh, we'll take our eye off the ball as it relates to China. Do you think the United States kind of needs to pick its spots because uh, if we focus too much on the European continent and we and, and Ukraine, somehow we're going to disadvantage ourselves in terms of our interest in the Indo-Pacific region and the, and the competition and challenge with China. Right. And this is the debate that we are having right now in Congress is uh, this you know, pivot to the Indo-Pacific. That's what large in part we have been focused on. But I actually heard uh, a military expert the other day state that, it, you know, we really should put that in our rear view mirror, because while we do need to focus on China, that is the long term threat. We have to know and understand that China and Russia and other adversaries are expanding all around the globe. So while we do want to focus on the Indo-Pacific as China with the long-term threat, 
we have to acknowledge and understand that China already has interests even in our own backyard. Uh, they are in South America, all over in South America, the Chinese influence. Um, you will see them engaging in port building activities all around the globe. And so, yes, we, we need to focus on China, but we need to know and understand that it's not just in one specific region. China is surrounding us. Russia is surrounding us. Russia is in Venezuela. Russia is in uh, other areas of South America. They are in Europe. Um, so while we do need to focus on the country of China, we have to understand that their influence has infiltrated countries all around the world. So we need to make sure that we keep a global view of what's going on and how they are influencing trade and economy, how they're working with other countries um, and infiltrating those governments, um, and certainly for national security, cyber warfare. We need to understand that they are everywhere at this point. So, yeah, I mean, truly the, the, the challenge and the competition economically, uh, the, the adversary, you know, certainly from a, from a security standpoint, is global in nature, as you outlined, and it's really the free world, wherever it exists around the globe is kind of coming up against uh, China and its communist ideology and its and its set of values, which are uh, conflict and, and, and challenge ours. But for those listening, you know, watching and listening, we're talking to Senator Ernst, who's the senator from Iowa, middle of the country, agricultural, you know, focus states, really not limited to that, but that's that that's the leading piece of your state's economy. Explain to us this deep-seated connection and integration between the United States and particular agricultural interests and China. I mean, it's, this is not a, a simple uh, ch kind of challenge. And, and this notion of somehow, you know, certainly economically, uh, the dependencies between each country, that is China and the United States, can simply be resolved. I mean, this is deep-seated. So why does a senator from Iowa not only need to know about this, but truly is expert in this? Well, thanks, Roger. We do have a very long relationship between the state of Iowa and the uh, CCP, uh, the, the country of China, um, because of our agricultural connections and the trade that we engage in. So uh, Iowa, of course, is a huge exporter of agricultural commodities like soybeans, corn, pork, um, at poultry, and a lot of that is consumed by China, and they do enter into trade agreements with Iowa. And one of those reasons is because uh, Xi Jinping, who is president of China, uh, he did travel to Iowa in the mid-1980s mm. when he was uh, a young provincial party leader. Uh, so he engaged with Governor Terry Branstad at that time in discussing agriculture and how Iowa and China could be more connected through agriculture. And that relationship has remained over these decades. Um, we hosted Xi Jinping while he was the vice president of China in uh, the early uh I think it was probably 2012, maybe when he visited the Iowa Capitol um, with a delegation of 
uh, Chinese members that were involved in agriculture came from their Department of Agriculture. So were you in the state Senate at the time? I was in the state Oh, so you Senate. recall seeing him there? Yes. Um, so I actually had the opportunity to uh, meet him briefly while he was at the state capitol, but was able to engage with a number of the Chinese delegation that came from their Department of Agriculture. And just a fascinating exchange. And to hear about their system of agriculture as well, which is very different than Iowa. But uh, so through those relationships, we have been able to engage in trade. Now, it's not always a good relationship. Uh, a number of years ago, there were some Chinese um, delegation members that came in and attempted to steal seeds out of Iowa from, um, you know, that were protected by intellectual property. And it, it was, uh, you know, not a good time in our relationship because we have to understand that while we do engage China in trade, we have to know and understand that they're always trying to steal American intellectual property as well. So we have this very tenuous relationship where we work closely with the Chinese on those agricultural trade issues. But we always know and understand that we may not be able to trust them completely when it comes to protecting our own interests. Uh, it's fascinating. We at the Reagan Institute, as you know, do our annual national defense survey, and we've seen a huge uptick. And really, President Trump and, and leaders like you and the Congress deserve credit uh, for this, which is the uptick in terms of Americans being concerned about China. It's the country uh, that Americans, uh, based on our survey, are most concerned about. And that makes sense, and it's really gone up uh, over the past, let's say, three or four years. Now the majority of Americans take that view, more so than Russia, at least when we polled in, in November 21. But for Iowa farmers, for your constituents, is that a point of tension? In other words, you're a leading voice in the U.S. Congress and the country highlighting the national security concerns China poses, not just national security, but economic, political, ideological as well. But the but the economic interests of many of your constituents and Iowa farmers and agricultural interests really is in continuing to trade with China. Do they ever come to you and say, hey, Senator Ernst, you got to tone it down. These are our trading partners. How do you manage that? Does that happen? It is, a, again, a delicate balance, Roger, but I think it's, it's one that we uh, should be able to work through um, with my constituents and their interests as they're trading with China. But I'm just going to share a story that an Iowa farmer shared with me um, when we were talking about uh, wrangling the China trade agreement that President Trump was working on. Um, President Trump was obviously putting tariffs on Chinese goods and so forth. And an Iowa farmer put it so brilliantly, you know, he said, yeah, he said, this is not helpful to us, but it's about time that somebody stood up to China and did something um, because, and he, he gave me the backstory because Iowa farmers say in the, the case of soybeans, they will sell their soybeans to China. Those, those soybeans will transit then across the Pacific Ocean but what China was doing is midway through that transit, they would cancel the order. 
And then they would renegotiate the price and cut a deal that was much lower than the original price. And Iowa soybean farmers, they caught the brunt of it every time, whether it was corn, soybeans, pork. Um, the Chinese were notorious for that. And they were so thankful that there finally was a voice that was standing up against China, even while they're one of our larger trade partners, we still needed to show strength and that we meant business when we were engaging in trade. Um, our farmers took it in the shorts for far too long. And we finally had a president with the, that would stand up against China. So there is a balance. And that's one thing that, that I hope some of the listeners or the folks that are watching will understand is that there are autocratic um, authoritarian regimes around this world. They only understand strength. Mm. And they only understand when someone pushes back against them. So we can be great trade partners, but China needs to understand that we mean business. A last question in this area, and then I want to—I can't let you go without talking about the midterms and and getting your views on on kind of where the uh, the Republican Party is headed. Of course, you'll be coming out to the Reagan Library uh, in the August to to give us a deeper dive into the in, into the Republican Party and the future of the conservative movement. We'll talk about it in a moment, but I can't leave the interesting politics and economy of Iowa and how it has these geopolitical uh, elements to it. We talk about being less dependent on despots. Europe right now wants to be less dependent on Russian energy. You can't rely on the despots. Think about Putin turning off the spigots for Poland and Bulgaria. In the United States, you've been a leader and others in Congress on becoming less reliant on semiconductors manufactured overseas. We realize that whatever powers our cars or our iPhones or whatever else we use, not just big technology, but smaller technology, we can't afford to have all that concentrated in one part of the world, which allows a despot to, to, to hold us uh, and leverage that against us. What about food dependency? Is there some view that you hear from your constituency, uh, from your businesses in Iowa saying, listen, I got to diversify. I can't be dependent on China being my largest company customer or a large company or customer, excuse me, I got to diversify beyond that one country. Is that happening in the, in the agricultural realm center? It does. And you think about it, he who has the resources has the power. And of course, whether it's energy, whether it's food, he who controls that does have that power. And so when we look at China and our exports to China, we do understand and realize that we need to engage other countries. So what we're producing in the United States not only can feed our country, but that we can also feed other nations and use those exports to our advantage. And what we have seen in this administration is a very lackluster um, you know, pursuit of additional trade deals with other countries, uh, lackluster pursuit of engagements with other countries that could help us mm. push back against Russia and Ukraine. Um, we know that poor Ukraine, uh, they will see 40 to 45 percent less food production this year because of the invasion. So we really need an administration that is willing to engage on trade deals with other nations and take calls from others. And what we have seen is this administration 
has tried to reach out to countries in the Middle East and they won't take his phone call. Um, we are not engaging with countries like Brazil, that is another big breadbasket of the world. We need to engage these countries and we need to have diplomatic ties. And this administration is failing miserably when it comes to garnering support. We need to be a leader, we need to show strength, and unfortunately, that's not happening. So yes, we need to make sure that with what we are producing in the Midwest, across the United States, that we can get it into other nations and become less reliant upon countries like Russia, um, like China, and all of those rare earth minerals. We need to develop other alliances, people that we know we can rely on when times get tough. Um, so let's move away from those near peer adversaries and let's focus on developing relationships that will be meaningful in the long term. Yeah, great point. I mean, we want customers to share our values and that, that really was the animating principle post-World War II. And we thought we could do that with China. And of course, uh, it's worked out quite differently, regardless of what the architects wanted. Let's briefly hit on the midterms and we'll wrap up with our lightning round. Senator, you sit in a leadership uh, post uh, in the Republican uh, conference. What do you expect coming up in November? We're sitting here in the spring. It's going to be a busy spring and summer with primaries. How do you feel about the House and what do you think is possible in the Senate for Republicans? Well, I think this would be a year that Ronald Reagan would be very proud of. I think we are going to take the House back. I think that is a given. I think even the Democrats in the House have <laughs> acknowledged that in a way. Um, and in the Senate as well, I do think that there is a pathway for a Republican majority in the Senate. It will come down to those candidates. Of course, we always need quality candidates emerging from those primary elections. And I think that we will see that. And I'm excited to really join in some of the campaign activities as we get closer to the fall. Uh, just last question on that, and we'll go to the lightning round. Uh Share with us a Senate race or two that you're, you're focused on, perhaps you're uh, going to help out and travel to, or candidates that you've spoken with that, you know, you're like, that'd be a good colleague to work with. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you look at some pickup opportunities, if you look at Georgia, um, I think Georgia is one of those pickup opportunities. And in that primary election, Herschel Walker has really risen to the top of that field quite handily. He's doing very well. He's raising money. He's engaging the voters. And he is just a very compassionate person, very approachable, very likable. Um, but he is also well-educated. He's a smart man. He's a conservative. He is a Christian. And I think Georgia voters will gravitate uh, to who he is, what he stands for, um, a strong conservative voice. And I think that is a really great pickup opportunity and one that I hope to engage in as well. Um, we do have a lot of military members that live in the great state of Georgia, and he has engaged heavily with the veterans community through a number of outreach programs that deal with mental health and mental well-being. So I think that that most certainly will be one that we will see in the yeah. fall, and I, I do hope to engage. Well, George is on the mind of everybody, so uh, it, it makes sense that you'd focus there. Let's wrap up. Uh, Senator Ernst of Iowa, thank you for your time. Share with us now in our lightning round your favorite uh, book on President Reagan, your favorite uh, speech 
by President Reagan or our favorite Reagan quote. We'll take any that you any of that that you have. Uh, well, I'll give you a couple examples because I I am a huge fan of Ronald Reagan. And even as a child, um, when he was in his presidency, I just, there was something about him that just resonated so much with me and my family growing up in the Midwest. Um, but uh, we always have heard, Reagan always used that old adage, um, peace through strength. And that truly is what I believe, is that we can have a peaceful world as long as we are strong. Um, so that is probably one of my favorite adages that was used by Ronald Reagan on a number of different times. Um, but I will share with the listeners, and I hope that they do go out and, and have the opportunity to listen to these, but there is a series of CDs that uh, you can listen to, and it's Ronald Reagan in his own voice, and it was uh, Ronald Reagan's broadcast over radio um, in the 70s. And that pre-presidential, you know, this is before he's in elected office, and he is talking about things like abortion and how to strengthen the economy. Uh, he talks about the Soviet Union. And I've listened to those over and over again, a number of his radio addresses. And I find that many of them are pertinent today. And so I do hope that folks will go back, uh, listen to those radio addresses. It's just really wonderful to hear him as he's giving those radio addresses. And most of those he wrote on his own. But what a brilliant mind that he had and how refreshing it was to, to hear such a strong leader even before he entered into the presidency. So I would encourage folks to listen Sen to that. They will be Sen inspired. Senator Ernst, thank you for that. We've done over a hundred of these Reaganism uh, shows and you're the first to mention the radio addresses. We'll link to it, that's great. Oh, Senator yeah. Joni Ernst, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure, Roger. Thanks to you and to those, um, of course, who are working on this Reagan podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.